thank you so much. I think some of the residual worship energy is still in the room. Um, yeah, great to be able to, to worship together, wasn't it? Um, do turn in your Bibles, if you've got one, to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read from verse 15 together in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Um, the words appear on the screen behind me. I am going to be reading from the English Standard Version translation. Um, so if it looks a bit different to yours, that's why. Um, and as I said, we're going to read from verse 15. My name's Duncan, by the way. If, you, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, um, I lead the church. Great to have you with us this morning, particularly if this is your first time. Just want to extend my welcome to you. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We are going to read one of the most uh, rich descriptions of Christ that there is in all of the Bible. And there's rumor um, that it was originally a hymn. And so I know you want me to sing it, but I am not going to sing it um, just because we all need to learn that we can't have everything that we want in life. So I'm going to read it out um, rather than sing it today. So this is a description of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The church that Paul is writing to here is a church in, in a place called Colossae, a city called Colossae, and they knew what it was like for life to be in chaos. The Roman Empire at this point almost certainly was ruled by a guy called Nero, and Nero was not a nice guy, and there had been political upheaval and turmoil and disruption leading to this, uh, to, to him becoming the emperor. And so over the whole Roman Empire, they had this, this guy who was pretty evil to everybody ruling over them, particularly for Christians. He was bad news. There was an awful lot of persecution going on for the believers at this time. And then on top of that, almost as significantly, in Colossae, there was a huge earthquake when this, around the time this letter was written. And so a huge earthquake that led to much loss, so loss of lives, loss of loved ones, loss of houses, jobs, livelihoods, and just societal disruption and chaos on a huge level, and then, of course, going down to the individual lives. And so in a very different way, this church in Colossae, they knew exactly what it was like, just like we do, to be living in times of political chaos, of societal disruption, of personal tragedy and difficulty and challenge on a day-to-day -day level. And Paul, in writing to them, says in, in the lead-up to this, he, his prayer is that he wants to strengthen them. He wants to give them, lead them into endurance. He wants to help them in patience in this time. And how does he serve that end? What does he do in order to help these people going through these circumstances? Well, this passage that I just read out. What he does is he wants to bring them right back. I mean, these are mature believers, but he wants to bring them right back to seeing and encountering Jesus Christ all over again. To seeing the one who he calls in verse 13, the beloved son with fresh eyes. 
And so as we come to a bit of an end of our year, you know, beginning of school holidays, we're having a little break over August from meeting here, and as we have this particular opportunity to worship God this morning, I want to do exactly the same as what Paul does here. I want us to behold Jesus Christ all over again. I'm going to speak for the next 15 or 20 minutes, because I think that's probably all my voice has got left after going for it in worship. Um, but my hope and my aim is that as we go through this passage and just unpack it a little bit, it will, whether just one thing or, or the whole sweep of it and the big picture that it paints of who Jesus is will just lead you to saying, Duncan, will you stop talking? I want to worship. Or maybe just, Duncan, will you stop talking? And we will finish by singing and bringing our worship to Jesus. So verse 15, the beginning. He is the image of the invisible God. For thousands of years, God's people had longed to see God and see his face and behold him as he is. Moses, you might remember, said to God, can I see your face? As he was getting to know God and starting to have God revealed to him, he's like, can I see your face? But God said, no, 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 you can't. You can, you can only see my back. You can behold kind of the outskirts of my glory. That's all you'll be able to take. And David in his Psalms said, oh God, I want to be able to see your face. Will you show me yourself? And he, like Moses, was unable to and never did. God was present throughout all of this time, but he remained somewhat invisible to his people. And it seemed surely then this dream, this longing of every human heart to behold God, to see him as he really is and to see him face to face, surely that will never be met. It's, it's impossible. Well, here we see the impossible made possible. The invisible made visible. That in the midst of darkness, light begins to shine. In the birth of Jesus Christ, in the most mundane of circumstances, the most ordinary event, just a baby being born in a small town, and suddenly God God himself could be seen. It's worth just pondering that God could have remained totally and completely invisible to his people and completely unknowable and imperceivable throughout all of human history and just left us guessing. Just I, I wonder who made us. I wonder what God might be like and what his character might be like. And I guess we'll never know, so we'll just be left to our own invention and on our own theories and thinking. But rather than leaving us in the dark, God went completely the other way. It's just, I want to make myself as visible as I possibly can. And I'm going to come right into the earth and come and be right before your eyes and dwell on the world. So that you'll be left in no doubt. You won't have to try and fill in any blanks and, and try and work it out for yourself. But that you will be able to see God as he truly is. And not just a, a slice of God, not just a, a part of God, like a kind of a reduction of God. Now, you might have caught it in verse 19. In, the in Jesus, the fullness of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That you see the person of Jesus Christ. You know the person of Jesus Christ. You are seeing and knowing God himself in all of his fullness, that he in and of himself is the total, true, and complete revelation of the divine being of God. 
in his very essence. There is nothing of God missing. When you see Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, when you know Jesus, you are missing none of God. What this meant is that as he walked around the streets of Capernaum or as he fell asleep in fishing boats, this was the divine being among his people, not just to fulfill the longing of the heart that they could see God, but now God dwelling among them in a way that they can they can touch God. They can share a joke with God. They can eat breakfast with God. The disciples ate breakfast with the holy, righteous, eternal, cosmic God of the universe as he came to dwell amongst them and be in their presence. And just continuing on verse 19, it says that he was pleased to dwell in this human form. It brought God pleasure to come down and be with his people. Brought him great pleasure to come and be seen and to be known and to share in all of life's experiences with his people. This is what he wanted to do, is just to come and be with his people. And it's the same for us today. This is exactly what brings God pleasure, that now for us, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, his greatest pleasure is to come and be with us, that we might see him, know him, experience him, that he comes and indwells within us. Every day of our life, we can know God with us. We can see God with us, that when we gather together corporately and we worship and the, 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 the living God moves among us by his presence, the fullness of God, the fullness of God amongst us, pleased to be with us. And as if then to underline, this is not just a, a representation of God that is dwelling on the earth, but the very fullness. Paul continues, verse 16, and says that by him and through him and for him, all things were created. Paul's saying this is the one who has brought everything everything that there ever is or has been into being. Nothing, nothing exists that God the Son that we know as Jesus Christ, nothing exists that he did not personally form. In that verse 16, twice Paul says, all things, all things he created. So he just wants to underline it, just everything Nothing is by accident. Everything that we see, everything that we know was dreamed up by this one that we are beholding. Everything was planned by him and then personally and precisely placed into, into position. Every single atom, every hair on our head, he put it there intentionally, on purpose, no mistakes. Just for a moment, marvel at his creativity, that he made it all. Just remember, there was nothing else made before Jesus Christ made the earth and the universe. He had no external reference that he could draw from. There wasn't another God sat next to him that he could just sort of peer over his work and copy a little bit like I did in GCSE art. And it's like, have you managed to make your giraffes not awkward? No, me neither. He had no other inspiration. All of it, all of the creative wisdom and inspiration had to come entirely from within. 
just consider and ponder the vast knowledge and wisdom and inspiration that is just contained within his very being that he can then make all of this happen. And then consider his power. That all of this comes about just through him, as Paul says here. That he just speaks and it appears. When did you last do that? When did you last speak and something came into being? But Jesus, there was once nothing outside of him. He speaks and it appears. And all of these things that he speaks, Paul says, are for him. This is the lens that we view creation through. That every single part of creation in his perfect wisdom is exactly, exactly as it should be. We don't need one caterpillar more. We don't need one jellyfish less. Everything is a fully, this is a fully complete creation that we live, live in. Not lacking anything, nothing too much. All of it is set up perfectly in his wisdom. And this is the mystery that we live in, in this creation, in this world that to us at times can seem so broken. When all is said and done, we will see this exact formation of what he has made. He is bringing through and moving towards a place where it will get him maximum glory, maximum satisfaction, maximum joy. Because it's all for him. That is the purpose of this creation. And this is where we find our part in it. That we too, we are made for him. We are made by him, through him, and for him. He's created us with a purpose. He's given us a role to play. We are made for him. We exist entirely to bring him glory. Which means that we are most alive, we are most ourselves, we are most who we are meant to be, and we find ourselves most when we are in the place of living for Him. So it means that when we do something like worship, it, we do something like singing praises and looking outside of ourselves to Him, we are doing exactly what we have been designed to be. We are doing what every created atom, and I don't know much more about biology and chemistry and all of those things, so I can't say anything more than atom. It's what it's all designed for, to point towards him, looking outside of itself towards him. But not only is he the one that creates, but he is the one that upholds. Verse 17. In him, all things hold together. Only because of the ongoing will and the ongoing work and activity of Jesus Christ in every moment does anything continue to exist. That if we find ourselves in moments and times where we're doubting the faithfulness of Jesus Christ or his commitment to his creation, here is a really good place to start. That every moment he is making a conscious decision to uphold his creation. Every moment that we exist, every moment is an opportunity to proclaim thanksgiving and praise and is another testimony of his supreme power that he's continuing to hold everything together in his hand. 
and is another testimony of his grace and his kindness and his goodness to all of creation. That in his goodness, his gift to us is that he would continue to breathe life into us. He didn't just breathe life into us once and then stop, but he is continually breathing and breathing and breathing into us to keep us alive. Everything, everyone, whether they acknowledge him or not, he is sustaining them. We are in an age where we love to think of ourselves as self-sufficient, don't we? I am a proud man. I like to think of myself as self-sufficient. Yeah, I can exist. I can, I can make things happen. I don't need anybody's help. Unless it's with DIY, then I need a lot of help. But here is a humbling and sobering revelation. We are not self-sufficient. We are utterly dependent on him to even exist, to even be able to get up out of bed every morning and we think what kindness what love that this is what would delight Jesus this is what he would be delighted to give us life that he would however we might respond to him he chooses to just continually give himself and give us sustenance and life and keep us going every second making a conscious decision I am going to be present I'm going to be active I'm going to be wholeheartedly committed to what I have made to keep it going and keep it alive but his faithfulness and his commitment does not end there verse 18 and he is the head of the body the church he has not left us his church on our own. He is our head. He's not just given us a set of vague instructions of how we will one day make it to heaven. A rough plan. Here you go, Revelation Church. Here you go, Church of the World. Just meet me at the end of time. Find your own way there. I'm sure you'll make it. And that we just then consciously be anxious, like, oh, I hope we one day make it. Or maybe we'll make a wrong turn and end up in total peril. We've just got to try and muddle our own way through. He has joined himself to us. He's the head and we are the body. And together we are one. Just for a moment, in light of what I've already said, try and get your head around this. And let's just make the connection that God is saying that he is not just happy and satisfied to be near us not just satisfied that we would be able to see him in all of his glory and all of his fullness, not just satisfied to be around us all the time. That's not enough for him. Somehow, somehow, Jesus, in all of his fullness of God, has made a way for us to be joined in to his fullness of being, and we participate in the fullness of God. I don't have enough time to go into it. And I don't know if I'd have much more to say. But the good news is it's not up to us to try and get our heads around it and to try and understand it and to try and reason it and see the logic of it. It is simply up to us to receive it, to celebrate it, to give thanks for it, that he has joined us to himself. And he has jo he's joined, yes, he's joined himself to us and joined us to himself that we have found our way into the very being of God. What radical, outrageous commitment is this? Just in a world where we know so many broken relationships, broken families, broken promises, 
There's just so little we can actually trust in. So few people we can actually trust. Here is one. He's never going to forsake us. He's never going to leave his church. He's never going to abandon us. He's made himself our head. And as our head, he is drawing us all together in him to be his body. That is how you get something like this. All kinds of different people who would never normally get along together as one, united. I mean, he's even brought together English people and Italian people, even after the Euros. It helps that the Italian people among us are some of the nicest people you will ever meet. But this is the work of God. So we, many of us would never have relationship were it not for him, yet he joins us together as a body, a people who can have unity, a people who can act in harmony and have shared purpose. An act of God. And as our head, he is showing us the way, he is leading us on to glory. He's taking us to the end of the story. And it's the end of the story where Paul ends this passage and this description through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, on earth, or in heaven. Jesus is bringing reconciliation to all things. Again, that phrase, all things, all things he created, and now all things he is reconciled. He didn't just breathe it into being. He didn't just sustain it. But now he is reconciling it. It's a stunning finish. What Paul is saying here is that the supreme creator Christ didn't, isn't just sustaining things and keeping things going and keeping the lights on. What he is doing is he has got a hold of the whole of creation and he is drawing it to himself. He is bringing it towards a conclusion and an end, and that is himself. In verse 18, Paul says, describes Christ as the beginning, and here we see he is the end. He is the alpha, he is the omega, he is above and through all things. He exists above it all. He is the one who was, he is the one who is, he is the one who is to come. He's sovereign over all things. And here he shows it quite supremely, that he is bending all of history towards himself. There is an unstoppable momentum to the whole of creation. It is just weaved into the very fabric and DNA of the universe. It is heading towards him, and it will never stop heading towards him. Each day it is getting closer and closer and closer to that final reconciliation moment with Jesus Christ. And we can look forward to this drawing ever closer. We can look forward to this reunion because, how Paul ends it, making peace by the blood of the cross. We don't have to fear this reunion with Christ because we are at peace with him. And I just want to finish in the same way that Paul finishes, by us pondering the cross once again. Beholding the cross. It was not enough for the fullness of God to be seen. Not enough for God to come in his fullness amongst us to be with us. Not even enough that we, his people, could touch and experience the fullness of God. God was not satisfied. His joy was not complete until he had fully given himself to his people. 
him as much as he possibly could. Just picture Jesus hanging there on the cross. The sovereign creator, the one who had entered into his own creation, now overcome and destroyed by the very ones that he had created. The one who had breathed life into all things, now hanging on an instrument of torture, fighting and struggling for every breath. As he was tortured on this instrument of execution, he was the one that in every moment was willing and working that cross to continue to exist. He was upholding the very thing. We thank you, Jesus. want to welcome him we we acknowledge your presence Jesus we thank you for your your humble sacrifice (laughs) the extent you would go to for us the shedding of your blood you willed it you willingly did it for divine joy you kept going for divine joy, for our sake, that we would know peace. We thank you, Jesus. We just, we acknowledge and see it all over again, Jesus. Your blood, our peace. And Jesus, as we, as we come before you now, we want to celebrate. We want to worship this great gift that you have given us. Just like any gift, any gift that we receive, the only appropriate response as we see it and behold it and as we recognize it is to worship. So maybe Nat and, and Rob, if you want to come up, just I remember the, the, the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, when you might know the story, when she realizes and she encounters Jesus and she knows this is how much I have been forgiven. This is how much I have received. She just pours out her worship. She just rejoices. She celebrates. She gives thanks. That as we see your cross once again, Jesus, we come in worship, we come in thanksgiving, we come in celebration of all that we have received, all that you have done, and maybe even more importantly, all that you are, the revealed God, the one who has come right into our midst and given ourselves, yourself so fully, so completely to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to finish by worshipping Jesus, reflecting on the cross and allowing ourselves to celebrate once again.
the finished work of the cross, the act on our behalf, and the victory that he has accomplished. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's sing to him.